God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by swarming Egypt with flying insects. Traditionally, this plague has been called the plague of flies. This probably relates to the way the Hebrew was translated, translated into Greek a few centuries before the birth of Jesus. However, the Hebrew word for this plague is arov, which refers simply to a swarm of flying insects. The prior plague sent specifically small biting insects on the Egyptians. However, this plague is less specific. It was a plague that included a wide variety of flying insects, most likely including flies, bees, dung beetles, and perhaps even including the small biting insects from the previous plague. The recollection continues in Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you are not going to let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they live. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so, and thick swarms of flies entered the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It's not permissible for us to do so, because we'll sacrifice to the Lord our God that which is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice that which is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God just as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go, so that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going to leave you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses left Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. The Egyptian god most closely associated with this plague was Kepri. Richard Wilkinson has described Kepri as follows. The name of the god and its earliest known occurrences, Kepr, is simply that of the scarab or dung beetle, which the Egyptians visualized as a symbol of the god, due to the beetle's habit of rolling a ball of mud or dung along the ground in a manner suggestive of the god pushing the solar disk across the sky. The female scarab beetle also lays her eggs in a similar ball, from which the young eventually emerge as though spontaneously. The biology of the insect thus seems to underlie the name of the god, as Kepri suggests the Egyptian verb keper, develop or come into being. As the developing one, Kepri was the god of the first sunrise at the dawn of creation, and was thus linked with a tomb, as a tomb Kepri. To some extent, Kepri also represented the sun in a general way, and he could be linked with the solar god Re, though his identity as the morning sun remained primary and his essential mythological role was that of raising the sun from the horizon into the body of the sky goddess Nut. The god could therefore be said to be swallowed by Nut each evening, and to travel through her body in the night hours to be reborn each morning. As a god who was constantly reborn, Kepri was also directly associated with the concept of resurrection. In the West today, we often think of swarms of insects as associated with death or decay. However, in ancient Egypt, such insects, such as dung beetles, were seen as part of the cycle of creation, 
the young of dung beetles emerge from balls of animal feces. For the ancient Egyptian, the scarab beetle had the power to bring life from death. Fly maggots similarly emerge from carrion and waste products. For the Egyptians, these very common occurrences reflected the emergence of life from non-life, order from chaos. As we continue to remind ourselves, idols are symbolic representations of the realities that we allow to shape our lives and to which we pay homage to increase our control over them. For the ancient Egyptians, dung beetles and flies were earthly reflections of the gods of creation and order. When God brought forth swarms of flying insects upon the Egyptians, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon the gods they believed controlled life and death to rescue them. And on this occasion, something as yet unprecedented again occurred. The previous plagues had affected not only the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. But this plague, the plague of flying insects, did not accost the Israelites. Only Egyptians endured the swarms. Interestingly, the Bible records no interaction between Pharaoh and his soothsayer priests with respect to this plague. On this occasion, Pharaoh needed no coaxing from his advisors. Pharaoh himself called for Moses and asked him to plead to the Lord on behalf of the Egyptians. Moses prayed, and the Lord recalled the flying insects. But having found relief, Pharaoh again would not let the Israelites go. Flying insects represented various aspects of the emerging of life from non-life for the Egyptians. Whether dung beetles, flies, or even bees, all were associated with the Egyptian gods of creation and order. But yet, the scriptures dec declare that it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the very same God who became flesh in the person of Jesus, who called forth life from the chaos, and who controls life and death. As the book of Genesis has confessed in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1-5, through 5, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, one day. The Egyptians had failed both to recognize God and to give him thanks for the creation of the world and his continuing watch care over all he had made. Instead, they had come to worship a pantheon of gods, each responsible for some aspect of the world. For the emergence of light from darkness and life from death, they had worshipped Kepri. Which god of the West is a god of creation? Kepri today is the Western god of nature. Perhaps this god can be illustrated by an episode from the life of Daniel, found in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. The scriptures say this, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines could drink out of them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank out of them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face became pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints loosened and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king began speaking and said to the wise men of Babylon, Anyone who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even more pale, and his nobles were perplexed. Moving to verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king began speaking and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the sorcerers were brought in before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel replied and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, greatness, honor, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Now because of the greatness which he granted him, all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages trembled and feared in his presence. Whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was arrogant and his spirit became so overbearing that he behaved presumptuously, he was deposed from his royal throne and his dignity was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of animals and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have risen up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine out of them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, nor hear, nor understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Aparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Pride takes many forms. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it manifested in self-congratulations, a tyrannical sense of self-importance, and a mandatory nationalism. In the case of Belshazzar, pride took the form of self-indulgence and carelessness with respect to the things of God. Both types of pride elevate a person above God. These early chapters of Daniel prepare us well for what God's response to such behaviors will eventually and inevitably be. Carelessness with the things of God generally occurs when the people of God focus on what matters to us without much thought as to what matters to God. Sometimes we even assume that what matters to us is what matters to God. When that happens, we tend to deify our preferences. That's how one praises the gods of gold and silver. Look at this workmanship. Look at this beauty. Aren't these things glorious? Does the glitter of gold, the majesty of architecture, or the skillful work of an artist matter to God? Are these the offerings God desires? Now some might say yes. 
After all, didn't God command the Israelites to build a tabernacle and then a temple filled with artistry and opulence? One could interpret God's desires for the temple in that way. In fact, it seems as though Jesus' disciples got caught up in the beauty of the temple's handiwork as well. But as we saw in episode 4, Jesus' response to their awe was telling. This is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Belshazzar and his court were Babylonian. They knew little of the God of all creation. Celebrating wealth and opulence and craftsmanship was only being grateful in their world. So they gave thanks to Mother Nature and her gift of precious metals as they drank their wine and ate their food. Do we imagine God values these things too? How could Belshazzar have known any better? Well, in saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from death when they refused to worship an idol of gold made to represent the king and the might of Babylon in chapter 3 of Daniel, God had spoken to the people of Babylon, but Belshazzar had forgotten. In humbling Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance and pride in chapter 4, God had spoken to the people of Babylon, but Belshazzar had forgotten. Perhaps he was not interested in stories of other rulers. When people study theology, that is when they research about God, they are most often interested in themselves. What do I have to do to please God? What has God done for me? What will God do for me? What will God let me get away with? How can I be sure not to end up on the wrong side of God's judgment? These are very self-centered questions. Belshazzar was not interested in knowing the God of Israel. Neither, in fact, was Nebuchadnezzar before him. They were interested in knowing how to appease God, but not in actually knowing him. Had Belshazzar paid attention to what God had said in Babylon's past, he would have known a few things that he did not. He would have known that God took it personally when people worshipped and praised the wealth of the earth, the power of nations, or the greatness of kings. He would have known that what God valued was submission to him and to his word. It was, after all, in response to obedience that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued from the furnace of fire. He also would have known that the vessels of the temple were holy, not because of the materials out of which they were made, but because of the presence of the one in whose presence they were used. Several times God had disciplined the people of Babylon to give them a chance to turn around, but in the days of Belshazzar, the season of God's discipline had come. Even so, we would do well to notice the grace in his discipline. First, long before the final condemnation of Babylon in chapter 5, God had sent warnings to the kings of Babylon. And now, even when judgment was at hand, God sent a warning in the form of this hand that wrote on the wall. Every warning sent by God is grace. It's an opportunity. God does not discipline us without first warning us of our waywardness. I'm convinced that one of the reasons disagreement and judgment have become evils in the West is because the spiritual forces of evil want us to be deaf to God's warnings when they do come. But God's warnings, God's convictions, God's discipline is grace to us. These are reflections of God's mercy. If you feel guilty, give praise to God that it's not too late for you. God is speaking. You must incline your ear to listen. Only after much ignoring does God bring judgment. As the Babylonians in Belshazzar's time worshipped the gods of creation in the form of gold, silver, and precious stones, and as the ancient Egyptians worshipped Kepri, the god of the emergence of light from darkness, life from death, and order from chaos in the form of flies and dung beetles, so we too in the West have come to worship the god of nature. For us, Mother Nature, as this god is called, is our creator. Most in the West no longer believe that Mother Nature is personal or personally concerned with humanity in particular. 
Mother Nature is a way of speaking of the laws of nature that have guided the emergence of life out of the raw material of the universe into all the varieties of life on Earth, and perhaps beyond. In the West, we believe we've been created by a random confluence of natural laws. Consequently, we believe it's the consistency of nature that has resulted in our being. The Babylonians gave thanks to the gods of silver and gold. The ancient Egyptians gave thanks to the gods of light, birth, and resurrection. We in the West give our thanks and gratitude to Mother Nature and her forces and laws. And as God sent swarms of flying insects upon the Egyptians, effectively turning their false gods of the emergence of light from darkness against them, so now upon the West God is affecting plagues. God has turned Mother Nature against us, and he's inviting us, as he invited the Egyptians, to call upon our false god to save us. If Mother Nature created us, then certainly nature will save us. Or perhaps we've sinned against Mother Nature, and Mother Nature has decided to purge us from creation. How will we pray to this mindless and different creator? Can we repent and be forgiven? Will she accept sacrifices from our hands that we might find redemption? God is mocking those who worship this false god as he sends plagues upon her worshipers. God is removing his hands of protection from nature, reducing the constancy he has maintained throughout this period of human life on earth. The plagues are multiple and easy enough to discern for those who have eyes to see. The West calls these things global warming, microbial and bacterial evolution, and so on. But these are plagues from God. Climate upheaval, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, the assault of insects upon human dwellings, attacks of animals against us even in our cities, and the mutation of viruses to evade human attempts to find a cure are all coming upon us now by the will of God. Repent, people of the West. Return to God. Give thanks again to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became flesh in the person of Jesus for creation and for its steadfastness and worship him only. And he will hear your prayer. This plague will only increase until the people of the earth turn from the worship of false gods to the worship of the one true God who created and is creating the heavens and the earth. May those who have ears to hear, listen.